It's easy to think that the people who lived at the time of Jesus, the people in the Bible, had it easy in terms of believing in Jesus. After all, they, they got to witness miracles firsthand. They got to hear Jesus teach in person. They got to see Him. In some cases, even touch Him or be touched by Him as He you know, put His hands on their eyes to heal their blindness or something like that. But we forget how much those people didn't know. How much uncertainty there was surrounding Jesus. How much misunderstanding existed, even in the minds of those who weren't enemies of Jesus, who were inclined to believe Jesus or at least um, give Him a fair hearing. There was so much that they didn't know. We have an advantage over them because we have the whole Bible. We have the prophecies of the Old Testament that tell us what we should expect Jesus to do when He comes. We have the Gospels that not only tell us what Jesus did, but often give us insight into why and how, what prophecies He's fulfilling in particular actions. We have the letters of Paul and John and Peter who explain the significance of what Jesus did. And some of the things that people around Jesus probably didn't have a chance to know, we know because we've been told. Jesus' virgin birth, for example. Most of the people who saw Jesus do miracles and heard him teach probably didn't know the circumstances around Jesus' birth. And that's part of what created some of the confusion we're going to see in John chapter 7 this morning. They also didn't know the end of the story. They couldn't know about Jesus' crucifixion and then his resurrection three days later because it hadn't happened for them yet. So while it's easy to kind of look back and say, oh man, wouldn't it have been great to be around when Jesus was doing all these things? And don't get me wrong, it would have. But don't make the assumption that it would have been easier if you had been around when Jesus was around. That's not necessarily true, as we'll see this morning in John chapter 7. Now, we've already read our scripture passage for this morning. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 31 of John 7, but I invite you to join me there if you're not there already. And we're going to see some confusion, some misunderstanding revolving around Jesus and, and coming from different groups of people, too, from his family from people who are just sort of watching Jesus, from those who oppose Jesus. All kinds of different people are all missing different things about who Jesus is. It starts with his family. Now John tells us in verse 1 that Jesus was in Galilee at this time. And he wasn't going to Judea because there were people in Judea who wanted to kill him. Now, Judea is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is, right? So that's where the capital is, that's where the chief priest is going to be, and that's where a lot of the religious leaders are going to be. Galilee is up in the north, that's more like where the the villages and whatnot are, and they're kind of away from the center of, of 
power and prominence and stuff in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is from, uh, and that's where he's staying at this point, because, again, people in Judea, near Jerusalem, they want to kill him. But it was time for another one of the feasts. John mentions in verse 2, the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is one of the three major feasts in Israel that every year for these three feasts, the people are supposed to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. That's true of Passover. uh, That's true of Pentecost, as we see in Acts chapter 2. And that's true of the Feast of Booths. So many of the Jews are going to be going to Jerusalem at this time of year. And Jesus' brothers, in verse 3 tell him that he ought to go up to this feast. They say, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, there are all kinds of things wrong with that. Right? First of all, has Jesus been doing these things secretly? No. Otherwise, why would people be trying to kill him? If nobody knew what he had been doing, nobody would care about who he is or what he had done. He's not been doing things in secret. He has shown himself to the world. But here's the other problem with his brothers. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. That's significant. Jesus just had, at the end of chapter 6... A large group of people abandoned him because they didn't like what he was saying. They said it was too hard, and they quit following him. Now, the twelve stayed with him, but many others have abandoned him. And here, Jesus is reminded again that not even his own family, not even his own brothers believe in him. Now, later they will. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has died and rose again and ascended back into heaven, we're told that the 12, as well as a group of disciples, about 120 people, were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, and they were praying together, and they were of one heart and mind, and Jesus' brother and Mary were among them. So we know that later, Jesus' brothers did believe him. They became a part of the group of people who were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But at this point, they don't believe. And so their advice to him does not feel encouraging. right? It doesn't feel like they're actually trying to be helpful. It feels a little antagonistic. you know. (laughs) If you you want people to believe in you, then why don't you just go up to Jerusalem and show everybody what you're doing? Well, Jesus says in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You you can go to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter when you go. But I'm operating on a different clock than you are. Because I have come with a particular purpose. And my Father has laid out a particular plan. And according to that plan, it's not time for me to go to Jerusalem to die. It will be time. But right now is not that time. Jesus is going to die at Passover as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb from the Old Testament whose blood is shed so that God's judgment will pass over his people. That's when he's going to die, not right now. So Jesus says, you don't understand 
the schedule I'm operating on, the plan that I'm following. That's why I can't go right now. He also says in verse 7 to his brothers, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. It can't hate you because you're just like them. You're one of them. But it hates me, Jesus says, because I tell it the truth. I tell people when they're sinning. I tell people when the things that they do are wrong. And they don't like to hear that. They don't like to listen to that. So he tells his brothers, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet come. And it says, after this, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus, we see here, is not swayed by opinion. He's not uncertain about what he should do. He is acting according to his Father's plan. A plan that is going to lead to his death at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, so that he will be our Passover lamb. But he does eventually go up. He doesn't go with his brothers, or when his brothers say he should. He does go up later. Verse 10 says, After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now that can seem a little confusing, a little contradictory. I thought he said he wasn't going. But then he did go. Well, maybe he simply meant, I'm not going right now. And then he goes later. Maybe he meant, I'm not going the way you want me to go, to be there publicly and make a big display. I'm going to go later, privately, which is what he does. And it's interesting in verse 11 that it says the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And verse 12 says there was much muttering about him among the people. So even though he's not made a public appearance, he does appear to be the center of conversation. The Jews are looking for him. They're expecting him to be there. But they don't see him. They're wondering where he is. Many of the people that are there are quietly talking back and forth about Jesus. And they have contradictory opinions about who Jesus is. John says in verse 12 that some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Was Jesus a good man? Yeah, he was. He was certainly not a bad man. He was a good man. But he was way more than that. He was the God man. He was the perfect man. He's more than a man, but he's certainly not less than a good man. They were right as far as that goes, but they didn't know enough about it. What about those who said he's leading people astray? Why would they say that? In what way could he be doing that? Maybe they were thinking of the healing he did on the Sabbath. Maybe they agreed with those who thought you shouldn't do things like that on the Sabbath. That was breaking God's law. And so he was leading people to take God's law lightly or even to feel comfortable breaking God's law. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Of course, that's not what he was doing. He will point out in just a moment. But maybe that's why they thought he was leading people astray. Maybe it was because of the claims that he was making for himself. Remember we saw in chapter 6, Jesus claims for himself things that can only be rightly claimed by God. 
That He alone can give eternal life. That if you want to live, you have to come to Him. You have to receive Him. You have to eat His flesh and drink His blood was the language He used. Maybe they thought, if He was a good man, He wouldn't claim things like that. Because a man can't say that without blaspheming. Well, that's true. But Jesus is more than a man. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not blaspheming. He's telling the truth. He's not leading people astray. He's actually showing people the Father. And He's perfectly fulfilling the law in a way that nobody else could or did. Verse 13 says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Him. So they're having these conversations in quiet corners and whispers. Nobody wants to talk about Jesus openly because the animosity toward Jesus is so great that they appear to be afraid that if they even talk about him, they could get in trouble. Do people still have this kind of disagreement about Jesus today? Absolutely. Are there people who say about Jesus, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. Absolutely. There are plenty of people who like some of the things that Jesus said. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we all followed the golden rule, if we all loved our neighbor as ourselves? There are plenty of people who will say, yeah, yeah, as far as that goes, I like Jesus. Are there people who say, no, Jesus is not a good person. Jesus led people astray. Absolutely. There are people who think that if you follow Jesus and listen to the Bible, you're going to be hateful, bigoted, judgmental. Because, as Jesus said earlier, He points out sin. He tells the world that it's evil and wicked. Neither of them, of course, are right. Because as we've already said, Jesus is more than just a man. You can't pick and choose among his teaching. You can't just say, oh, I love that Jesus said, love your neighbor and love your enemies and do unto others and so on. You can't pick and choose among Jesus' teaching because Jesus claimed also that if you wanted to live, you had to die And follow Him. You had to take up your cross. You had to deny yourself. You can't pick and choose among what He said. You have to take it all. It's also not true that Jesus leads people astray. He leads people into the truth. Because He is the truth. Following Jesus does not make people judgmental or hateful or bigoted. And if people do become so, it is not because they are following Jesus, but because they are failing to. Because Jesus was not judgmental, even when he warned people of judgment. Jesus was not hateful. He loved the people that the people around him hated. Jesus was not bigoted. He talked to people nobody else would talk to. Like the Samaritan woman at the well. 
Jesus is more than a good man. He is the God-man. He does not lead anyone astray. He leads us in the way of righteousness, the way of love, mercy, peace, justice. Not everybody saw that. Still not everyone sees that. But we need to see it. Jesus did eventually go up to the feast, verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, John says, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So here's the next thing they're confused about with Jesus. How does he know this stuff? Where did he get this stuff? Where did he learn these things? Jesus didn't go to school, so to speak. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't train under a recognized teacher like Paul later did with Gamaliel. So how does he captivate these audiences? How does he tell these powerful stories? Where did he get this learning? That's what they want to know. Jesus' answer is simple. Verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My teaching comes from God. This is not uh, an excuse for us to not study and not go to school. Jesus didn't do that. Well, yeah, but Jesus was God. Okay, so this is not like a blanket excuse for all the rest of us. Where did Jesus' teaching come from? It came from the Father. It came from Him who sent me, He says. Well, that's easy to claim. How do we know if it's true? Verse 17, Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Here's one of the things that is interesting in the Gospels. The people who are adamantly opposed to Jesus. Jesus does not say, You know, I could see how you got there. You know, I understand why you're confused. Jesus says to them, for example, later in chapter 8, you know what your problem is? You belong to your father, the devil. You're following Satan. That's why you won't listen to me. That's why you're trying to kill me. Jesus says here, if your heart... Your will is genuinely inclined to know what God's will is. You'll be able to tell if I'm telling the truth or not. So he's clear about where his teaching comes from, even though not everybody believes him. And another part of the confusion they have comes back to that healing on the Sabbath he did in chapter 5. They don't understand where he came from, where he gets his teaching, who he is. And a lot of it comes down to this right here. Verse 19. Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? You are all lawbreakers, Jesus said. Every single one of you. You're seeking to kill me. They have this great allegiance to Moses, but they don't obey what Moses said. 
And the crowd answers, verse 20, you have a demon. Right? They're essentially saying, you're, you're crazy. You're influenced by the enemy. Who is seeking to kill you? Well, there are people seeking to kill him. Maybe all the crowd doesn't know about it. Maybe they do. But here's how Jesus replies. He brings us back to chapter 5. Remember in chapter 5, he healed a man who'd been an invalid for almost 40 years. But he did it on the Sabbath. And some of the people, some of the religious leaders got really mad about that. And we're told the reason why they were seeking to kill Jesus is not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but also because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he brings it back to that story, and he says, in verse 21, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. I did one thing that you guys can't get over. And he's referring to that work on the Sabbath. And then he says in verse 22, he's going to show them why their anger at him about healing on the Sabbath is so radically wrong. They think... They are being holy and righteous and upholding God's law. They think they have got Jesus nailed down as a bad guy because of what he did on the Sabbath. He can't be from God. He's not even keeping God's law. That's what they think. But with one illustration, Jesus is going to turn the whole thing on its head and show them that they are the ones who are getting everything wrong. He says, verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, because circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham, way before Moses. But then he says, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So I'm not the only one doing things on the Sabbath that could be classified as work, Jesus says. If on the Sabbath, verse 23, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Here's what Jesus is saying. You break the Sabbath to circumcise somebody. Why are you mad at me for breaking the Sabbath to heal somebody? How is that less important? How how is that any different? If you can break the Sabbath to keep the instruction about circumcision, why are you wanting to kill me over healing a person's whole body? Don't you think that's something God wants too? You guys don't understand the law you are so eagerly trying to defend and enforce. And then he says, verse 24, words that we really need to pause over and consider. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What does that mean? That charge is not just for the people in Jesus' day. It's for us, too. How many times have you been unfairly judged based on an appearance? Based on how you looked or based on what it looked like you were doing? Somebody came to a conclusion that was wrong and unjust and inaccurate, but they were convinced you were guilty. 
they were convinced you were wrong. That's probably happened to all of us at some level or another, right? How many times have people jumped to a conclusion about someone based on a quote out of context, a brief video clip, or some other limited information that was later proved to be wrong? Happens all the time. As followers of Jesus, we have to be careful not to judge based on appearances, but to judge fairly and rightly. And that requires having the right information and weighing it and applying it correctly. Sometimes, People are judged unjustly because we don't have the right information. We've been given misleading information or incomplete information. And we jump to a hasty judgment without asking questions, without digging deeper. Sometimes people are judged unjustly because we've not properly weighed the evidence. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. You guys think I'm breaking the Sabbath. Think about what you do on the Sabbath and compare it to what I did on the Sabbath, why why are you determined to kill me for breaking the Sabbath when you do something on the Sabbath that is not even as good as what I'm doing? Sometimes people are judged unjustly because we don't apply the information we have correctly or fairly. So whether it's someone we know personally or someone we hear about on the news, it is easy and too easy to jump to the wrong conclusions based on limited and inaccurate information. And when we do that, we are not imitating Jesus, we are imitating those who opposed him. So we need to be careful. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter if that's how everybody else responds to all the information we're being flooded with all the time. Jumping to conclusions. right? Making hasty judgments. And then when they turn out to be wrong, just pretending like you never made that wrong, hasty judgment. That's what everybody else is doing. We can't do that. Because that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus calls us to. And following Jesus means judging rightly. It doesn't mean you never judge, never come to a conclusion. It just means you make sure you've got the right information and that you're coming to the right conclusion before you come to that judgment. What was the main piece of information that the people in this story did not have that led them to come to a wrong judgment about Jesus. There's more than one, right? They, didn't, they weren't applying the law correctly, and that was part of it. They didn't understand the law. But the main thing they got wrong, the main piece of information they didn't know, was who Jesus is. If they had known that he was God and believed that, all these problems would have gone away. If they believed and knew that he was God, then they could have said, you know, maybe he knows the law better than we do. 
Maybe we should be asking him questions instead of forming judgments. Maybe we should say instead of, you deserve to die for healing this man on the Sabbath, maybe we should say, teacher, why is it okay for you to heal on the Sabbath? We would have thought that was wrong. Clearly it's not. Can you explain why? I think Jesus would have been happy to answer that question. Right? This all moves to one more set of misunderstandings about Jesus in verse 25 to 31. It comes down to the same problem we were just talking about, Jesus' identity. Who is he, really? Verse 25 says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They want to kill him, but they're not. What are they afraid of? What are they waiting for? What's the problem? Do they know something they're not telling us? Do they actually believe this guy is the Messiah? And that's why they won't arrest him or kill him? But here's where they go wrong. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, that statement is a little difficult to unravel. Because, first of all, it's not clear, to me at least, where they got the idea that they wouldn't know where the Messiah comes from when he comes. Because, on the one hand, the Old Testament does make really clear where the Messiah is going to come from when he comes. Because when Jesus was born, and the wise men came from the east, and they came to Jerusalem to Herod, and they said, hey, we saw the star, the king has been born, where is he? Herod asked the the scribes and others, you know, where is the Christ to be born? They didn't have to take a, you know, six-week study break to answer the question. They said, the prophet... Micah says that he'll be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. That's where he was born. So, on the one hand, it seems like they ought to know where he comes from, if we're talking about location, right? But they say, we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Why... Do they say that? And why does Jesus respond the way that he does? Because in verse 28, Jesus says, You know me and you know where I come from. Now, that's one of those statements where I really wish I could hear the tone that Jesus said it in. Is he agreeing with them? Yeah, you do know me and you do know where I come from. And that's okay. Or is he saying it kind of like, You do? You know me? And you know where I come from? Are you sure? Because I'm not sure you do. Because the next thing Jesus says is, But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. So you don't actually know where I came from. Because I came from someone who sent me, and you don't know him. So you don't really know where I came from. You just think that you do. You know where I grew up. You know where I lived. You know I'm from Galilee. Maybe you even know I was born in Bethlehem. 
but you don't actually know where I came from because I came from God. I came down from heaven. And if you knew that, all these other questions would be resolved. Right? One way to explain this comes from a, a, a great Bible teacher from the past uh, named Thomas Aquinas. He said this. He said, the people knew from the prophets where he was from according to his human origin. So they know where he was born. And they also knew, he says, from the prophets, that they did not know where he was from according to his divine origin. So in their question here, they're probably uh, referring to the fact that they think, well, the Christ is going to come from somewhere mysterious, somewhere heavenly. Right? And in a sense, that's right. Because he did come down from heaven. They don't understand that. But then they say this, and I I love this line in verse 31. Verse 30 says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then this, verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Here's the thing I love about that. What they are essentially saying is, if this guy is not the one that God promised, what's that guy going to be like? I mean, who could do more marvelous, more wonderful, more unexplainable, more powerful, more compassionate, more loving things than Jesus has done? If he does not stand out, even among all the other prophets and saints and holy men and women of old, if he doesn't stand out head and shoulders above them as the Messiah, then I don't even know what we're looking for. I don't even know what to expect. This guy has healed someone who was an invalid for 38 years. Jesus has already turned water into wine. He's teaching in ways that people are amazed by and marveling at. Everyone's talking about him, even when he's not there. He's the center of conversation and discussion. He's fed a multitude of people with hardly any food. He's done things nobody else has done on a scale nobody else could do them. For everyone who was confused about Jesus and misunderstood who He was and why He came, the answers were right there in front of them. And many of them missed it. We don't want to miss it. John doesn't want us to miss it. That's why he and the other gospel writers and the other prophets and apostles of the scripture give us the whole story. There's no reason for us to be confused about Jesus or misunderstand who he was or why he came. Because the whole Bible is really clear about that. And so is Jesus. His actions again and again and again, show that He has to be God in the flesh. His death and resurrection on the third day, 
set him apart from every other significant figure in the Bible or in history. And those men who bore witness to his death and resurrection did so at the peril of their own lives. They weren't making these things up about Jesus. They were willing to preach them because they knew that they were true and they knew that trusting Jesus was the only way for anyone to be saved and he charged them to spread that message. He fulfilled the law in every respect. He laid down his life as a sinless sacrifice. He judges rightly, not by mere appearances. He loves us despite the things we could be judged for rightly by Him. He loves us anyway. He laid down His life for us. And He gives us life if we just believe. There's no better news in the world. No better offer out there. No surer promise. No greater teacher. No other Savior. Let's pray.